Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Post-Acute Advisor podcast. I'd like to thank you all for tuning in, and please be sure to check out our website, postacuteadvisor.blr.com, for all your post-acute care news and information, including future podcasts. My name is Tammy Swartz, and I'm one of HC Pro's Post-Acute Content Managers. And with us today is Maureen McCarthy. Maureen is president of Celtic Consulting and CEO and founder of Care Transitions, a care coordination service provider. Welcome, Maureen. Thank you, Tammy. It's great to be here. And so today I wanted to talk about um, the fiscal year 2022 proposed payment rule. Um, the, the main headline is that nursing homes would receive a 1.3% net Medicare increase. So Maureen, I just wanted to start off talking about, um, is this rule overall a good thing for SNFs, do you think? I, I do. There, it wasn't... Um... There weren't as many changes with this proposed final rule as, her, as there have been in some previous years. I think some of the uh, some of the more prominent areas are the you know the overall reduction um, and the forecast error. Um, looking at some of those components where we thought we would have been getting a little bit more um, out of the program. The other changes that they're looking at as far as diagnosis codes that they're adding or, or moving around when it comes to mapping with PDPM were actually things that most folks have been asking for. Um, and some things that, you know, when you look at them from a CMS perspective, it makes sense that they're going to map to return to provider because they would have additional um, components that would be reported during that time without getting into too much, you know, clinical detail. Um, so I think that those were some positives, you know, things like um, esophageal bleeds, you know, where someone would have a GI bleed hadn't been covered. It was not one of the um, diagnoses that would map to any of the PDPM categories, but it's a common, you know, it's a common condition that patients come into skilled nursing facilities with a GI bleed. So we actually had a few patients with, a, with chronic GI bleeds that when we converted to PDPM, were coming back to nursing homes for an admission under PDPM and had to get turned away at the door because, you know, they had limited diagnoses and none of them crossed the return to provider um, check. You know, so, you know, the patient's going, but wait a minute, I, I came in for this condition last year and Medicare paid for it. I don't understand. And from the beneficiary's perspective, it is difficult to understand because, you know, how did they pay for it last year, but they're not paying for it this year. So. I think that we need to have a little bit more um, concentration around that area. Um, in addition to that, I always look for uh, additional potential chemotherapy medications that would be included. And I think as an industry, we all need to, you know, sort of come together to share information maybe with, you know, state associations or, you know, other larger organizations with national platforms to talk about this, some of the chemo medications that we're coming across now that are not exclusions to PDPM uh, or to the PPS system mm -hmm. <clears throat> still may meet the criteria um, under CMS, but are not excluded. So, you know, we need to collect that information throughout the year so that when we're reporting that back to CMS, we're pretty comprehensive about, you know, what we're reporting back so that if there are additional medications that should be excluded, we're bringing that to CMS's attention um, that the, we're starting to see these in nursing homes and these you know, med types of medications are much more, um, you know, should be excluded related to they need to be given by IV 
or they're so caustic that, you know, you need certain supervision when, when providing these types of medications. So I think those are areas that we could get better at as an industry to um, fight for more changes when the rules are coming out or reporting back during the comment periods um, to suggest additional changes to CMS. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what other um, big ticket items are on this proposal that SNFs should be aware of and should be they should I, I know this is simply um, the proposal at this point, but should they be doing anything to prepare? Yes, those skilled nursing facilities that were in certain um, wage index areas, they need to sort of look at that because every year there are changes as to where someone is assigned, whether they're urban or rural, um, whether they're in a certain wage index, you know, geographical area um, or not. And I think some of those changes, uh, you know, they need, they should be aware of. Um, for instance, the rural um, components, not the base rates, but the incentive multiplier there that's looking at the wage index for rural Connecticut went down rather than up. And, and historically, it's always gone up because cost of living's gone up. And this was the first year that it's gone down. So even though the base rates are going up, if that wage index is going down, that's going to affect your revenue. So I would suggest that folks, you know, keep an eye on that. There were some counties in New Jersey last year that ended up reducing when final rule came out by about 17%. So you, know, you need to definitely you know, keep your eye on that. Some additional changes that were in the positive, we're looking at payments associated with um, you know, clotting factor use, looking at fo you know, folks with uh, um, blood clotting diseases. Um, and so I think that that was helpful. I'm not sure that it's a huge population, but every single bit that you get back um, is going to be helpful as well. So there were some, you know, minor adjustments that, you know, increased by a penny here or a penny there that, um, you know, would affect those providers, you know, providing those services, even though it may not be a large volume um, service that's provided. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, um, also within the rules, the reporting requirements, and we were talking a little bit before uh, this podcast uh, specifically, too, about the CARES Act money and um, some challenges there. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, some of the providers when, I mean, when we started reporting, especially this past summer of 2020, um, you know, a lot of reporting requirements were coming out at the same time. You had national requirements, you had state requirements, you may have had additional local public health department requirements. And so it got very confusing for providers. And some of them thought that they were, provi they, they were providing the information appropriately and they were submitting to um, NHSN, but it wasn't getting through to the CDC side. So, you know, we had some folks that reached out that were wondering where their CARES Act dollars were um, because they were reporting the information and thought that they would have been qualified. And so some folks didn't look at the data that they were submitting and they were excluded based on, um, you know, their positivity rates. And then there were some that were that thought that they were reporting and didn't either pass the QA component or it wasn't going all the way through to uh, CDC. And um, again, didn't get those dollars. So um, making sure that folks have the correct reporting information um, and it's getting all the way through is something that they really you know need to need to uh, keep their eye on. Absolutely. And you know, speaking of last year. Um... <laughs> Uh, the industry has been through a lot. Um, clearly, this rule kind of comes off of PDPM. So how did P P 
PDPM drive this new proposal? Is this really just um, a bit of an adjustment um, after we've seen PDPM in effect for a while? Well, I think that um, the reporting as far as COVID had less to do with PDPM and much more to do with, you know, with oversight. Mm -hmm. But um, looking at having, you know, a year under our belt with PDPM, uh, I thought it was, you know, I thought, it, I don't want to say fascinating, but I thought it was interesting with that they're rebasing from 2014 to 2018. So they're getting closer. Um, CMS is getting closer with the reporting. So the quicker the turnaround time that the providers give back to CMS, then the quicker CMS can turn that data around um, and look at what's happening. Um, recently, CMS, um, um, we re received some information through some um, other reporting that they were doing, some other um, things that they were participating in and looking at the what they've collected under PDPM and separating out those folks that had COVID by diagnosis. So separating the U07.1 uh, COVID-19 diagnosis out and then looking at data in many different ways. I think it's going to be difficult at best to rebalance PDPM um, under the conditions that we've got during the mm -hmm. pandemic. Um, because we really only had one quarter, you know, October 19 through December uh, of 2019, you know, and that was really a learning curve. That was the first quarter that anyone was looking at PDPM. And as they started to, you know, get it under their wings on, you know, January, February and into March, um, and then you're dealing with a pandemic. So, right. um, yeah, I think that that's, uh, that definitely had some bit of an impact, but I think that the pandemic, you know, with the reduction of the number of therapy minutes that were given, you know, we're averaging 350 and maybe 400 minutes now, where we had been giving 720 minutes consistently prior to. What effect did COVID have on that? What effect did, even though the patient may not have had COVID, what effect did um, social distancing have mm -hmm. on those minutes? Would they have been closer to 720 minutes um, if we didn't have a pandemic. So I think it's going to be difficult from a CMS perspective to identify those facilities that they intended in the beginning of PDPM to look at for therapy provision to see if they had, you know, large changes of what they previously were providing versus what they're providing now. Absolutely. It's been an interesting, it's been an interesting year. Um, so, you know, I think that's really what I wanted to talk about in terms of the of the proposed payment rule. I wanted to let our listeners know that um, CMS is taking comments on the proposals until June 7th. And, of course, you can find um, links to the CMS site where the rule is up on our uh, Post-Acute Advisor website. Um, before before we go, Maureen, did you have any other um, final thoughts on, on the rule and what this really just need to be thinking about for for the future for fiscal year 2022? I sure do, Tammy. And that would be getting prepared for the flurry of auditing that's likely to come behind mm -hmm. you know, any federal changes that we have, any regulatory changes that we have. So you know, the reduction in therapy minutes will likely be something that's going to be looked at. The increase in speech therapy, um, um, you know, uh, conditions, let's say comorbidities and things like that, those things that we hadn't gotten paid for before that didn't really make a difference to us. Now that we're focusing more on those areas, there, there's an increase. And so I would suggest to listeners to, um, you know, sort of get your ducks in a row at this point, because when the auditing starts, it will be fast and furious. 
And so it will be difficult to get organized at that point in time. So start looking at a collect data collection system, a tracking system, and how you manage the process of ADRs or additional development requests at this point um, and sort of think about that. It's going to be similar to what we went through in 2009 and 10 and even afterwards uh, when we flipped from you know, MDS 2.0 to 3.0 and went from RUBS 3 to RUBS 4. Um, so I think that providers can sort of get ready for something similar uh, under this payment system as well. And is there a time frame and when those audits should likely ramp up? Um, I know that some of the managed care um, organizations mm -hmm. are already in full swing auditing PDPM. Um, but I know that the Office of the Inspector General is also interested in what we're looking at for PDPM. And one of the largest suggestions that I would make to your listeners is to um, have some, um, be able to speak to how they chose the primary diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're seeing that some folks are looking for dollars there rather than the focus of treatment, where if your documentation is not consistent with that primary diagnosis, it's likely to be adjusted after the fact. You know, an example would be if someone had a, a stroke 10 years ago and you're using that as the primary diagnosis, but they're in your facility for pneumonia and everyone's, you know, documentation of the interdisciplinary team has revolved around pneumonia, yet you have a primary diagnosis that has nothing to do with the care that's being provided. That's likely something that will that will get looked at and scrutinized. Right, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Maureen, as always, for joining us today and providing such useful information. And I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning tuning in. And uh, of course, I also would like to wish them a happy skilled nursing week as well. Um, be sure to check out our postacuteadvisor.blr.com for all upcoming podcasts. And we hope to see you next time. Thank you. And happy Nurses Day today. <laughs> thank you.